it is not a kid's job to take care of their grown-ups emotions, uh, but they can see that, hey, when my parent has a big feeling, uh, that they have other people they talk to. And that can be a really strong model for, for the child, not just strengthening with the parent-child relationship, but also for their own emotional growth and well-being. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. Today we're excited to welcome Samantha Green to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Samantha is the owner of Greener Pastures Wellness, LLC. Samantha is a lifelong Texan and graduated from Texas Women's University with a bachelor's degree in social work in 2007. She went on to earn a master's degree in social work from the University of Texas at Arlington. Samantha has a background working for CPS and has the unique perspective of having been involved in high-conflict custody litigation, both as a litigant and as a professional. Samantha describes herself as a sex-positive and affirming licensed clinical social worker with a virtual private practice treating pre-adolescents all the way through older adults. She's a board member of Equality Texas and the proud mom of the coolest seven-year-old ever. Samantha also testifies as an expert witness. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, So I started off um, with uh, my undergraduate, my bachelor's is in social work from Texas Women's University. Uh, Part of our degree plan was to have like an internship. And I got um, through a stipend program at CPS, just kind of fell into it. Uh, So um, it was really cool because I got to graduate and... um, I graduated on a Friday and started work on Monday. So I had a job lined up, ready to go uh, and stayed there for about six and a half years uh, during my master's. Um, During that time, was also able to get some hospitalization experience working inpatient um, and really developed um, kind of a a passion for working with trauma between working with um, the children who were um, came into care with CPS, as well as the the families as a whole. Um, Kind of there's that saying that ish rolls downhill uh, and those kids didn't come into care on accident. And there was a a story that got them there. So a lot of the part of the work that I really liked uh, was also working um, with, with the parents and the families as a whole to change the whole system. Uh, so it's, it's um, you know, healthy families make for healthy children. Uh, so from there shifted to working um, at an inpatient um, or residential drug treatment center and kind of switched gears um, from working where my job was primarily the advocate of the children to where I was working with primarily the parents. Um, so that was a really interesting uh, shift, especially hearing clients tell me, you know, like, oh, here's how I'm going to get one over on my CPS worker. Yeah, I could try. <laughs> Um, like, you know, that that might not work out the way you're thinking. Um, so I um, was able to do get a lot of really good experience there, especially with, um, of course, more mandated clients, just like with CPS. Uh, people don't generally put uh, hanging out with your CPS caseworker or going to drug treatment on their bucket list. Like they might go uh, going to the Eiffel Tower or to Disney World. Um, so working with people who don't want to be there and who never in their wildest dreams thought that they'd be in the position that they are in front of you right now. Um, So from there went and did um, some more uh, kind of within a private agency, substance use disorder setting and recovery uh, as well, working with the families uh, and then did some crisis intervention work. So um, when people talk about alternative police response, uh, that's what I did for a while. Um, Also doing psychosocial assessments and things like that with uh, child welfare involved families. Uh, and then also doing a private practice. 
So um, private practice, like you said, um, pre-adolescence on up. And I do work with families um, who have involvement with court systems. I, my role is clinical, so I'm not forensic. Uh, so I'm not the person that tells you if something did or didn't happen. Uh, I can report what I see. I can report what is reported to me. And, and part of being a good practitioner and good clinician is also triangulating that with their other providers. So if they're seeing a psychiatrist, a primary care physician, that's also treating their mental health. Um, if they have a family therapist, in addition to myself as an individual therapist, uh, if it's an adolescent, who are they working with at school uh, and getting all those people on board? Um, because it really is not just like the whole family as in, you know, parent A, B or, or C and D and non-traditional family systems. Um, or it's it's more than that and the children. It's It's a whole community around them too. So you mentioned that you are a clinical therapist, not a forensic therapist. For anyone listening who maybe doesn't really understand the difference, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So, so forensic is kind of like digging in into the trenches and finding alternative explanations. And is there, you know, like I, I'm assuming the lawyer term might be like probable cause for if this did or didn't happen. Um, so my role isn't to determine like if something is, is true or false. Um, my role is to kind of validate that client where they at that no matter what's going on, it is obviously a painful experience. Um, lawyers are lovely, but y- y'all aren't Pokemon cards. We don't want to collect them all. And you're much cooler to go out to lunch with um, <laughs> than, to have to, than to have to pay on the hourly. Um, so it's like knowing that that person is in a space where they don't want to be, they didn't plan on being, uh, no one wakes up one day and goes, you know, I think I'm going to sue, um, you know, my child's mother parent. That's not something that people come to on a whim. Uh, so it's really understanding and listening to the story and the trajectory of how, um, you know, this family kind of got where they are and what they need in their own life to get through the process. Cause litigation is is emotionally taxing. Um, so what do they need to support themselves through that process? Because supported parents are better able to support their children. Uh, and it also is a really good teaching tool for children. Children do not need to know that their parents are involved in litigation. That's grown-up stuff that sticks to the grown-ups. But they are totally aware if a parent is having a hard time emotionally. And they do need to see that um, that parent has other, other adults that they go to. And that um, it is not a kid's job to take care of their grown-ups' emotions. Uh, but they can see that, hey, when my parent has a big feeling uh, that they have other people they talk to. And that can be a really strong model um, that for, for the child, not just strengthening with the parent-child relationship, but also for their own emotional growth and well-being. So as a clinical therapist, do you find yourself working with forensic therapists in the litigation context? I do. Mostly it is, I can kind of give you the information. So for instance, if they're like, uh, which parent um, isn't getting a child to medical appointments? Well, I can tell you the days the appointments are, and you guys know the visitation schedule and the, the possession schedule. And I hate that word possession schedule because uh, we don't possess people. And I really wish y'all would change the lingo. Um, <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, I say here when the appointments were scheduled, um, here's what was missed. And, and people know where the, the kiddo was on those days and, and um, the adults um, and, and, and litigators can, can put two and two together. Um, so my role isn't um, to determine whether, um, of course, never to say whether a child um, should or shouldn't be placed with someone that is strictly for custody evaluators and standard, standard setting mental health folks can't make custody recommendations. And so that isn't something that a mental health provider in a clinical role should be providing. They can say things like, um, so for instance, if parent A brings kiddo in and um, that those days you can mark that, um, let's say 
they arrived at the appointments late. There can be a pattern of uh, the appointment that was scheduled at three didn't start until 314. And, you know, you can look at the schedule and see what's what. Um, kind of thing, um, if when in cases of working with adolescents, are they, um, you know, looking at interaction? So um, how does the, the, the kiddo present? So as there, are there differences? Like, are they more lethargic and tired um, on, on repeat? Is there... Um, are they aware? Because so often they are aware of much more than we give them credit for of what's going on with the conflict with their parents. Um, so it's kind of like that safe space of um, like, this is a place for them to kind of process that this is a lot for them. And it's not a situation that they asked to be in. Uh, and, you know, grown up issues are not kids' responsibility. So some of what I do is also providing that safe space. When there's court involvement, I do let the kiddo know like, hey, um, that there's some limits to like the Vegas rules that go with therapy. So your standard setting, um, I can um, only talk about things if it's, you know, imminent danger to yourself or somebody else, uh, abuse, neglect, or exploitation in certain circumstances, or, you know, I've got to raise my right hand and sort of tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, that part I talk about a little bit more. And so we'll talk about like that I want this to be a space, safe space and also I can't be a secret keeper. And how can we like teach your parents like the manual to you uh, and what they need to know about you? Because especially with adolescents, they pick, can pick up on often that parents can be really involved in what's going on with litigation. It's impactful and, and they couldn't not be. Uh, and so sometimes when they need something else, it's like teaching them the words and teaching the parents also how to appropriately reciprocate that um, and how to encourage it uh, and keep that flowing regardless of what else is going on um, in the stratosphere. I know that one part of your practice is kind of a bit of a specialty, I think, for you, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is dealing with the LGBTQ plus community. Can you tell us a little bit about that avenue of your practice? Yeah, so um, that about, um, I'd say about 75% of my caseload right now um, is some kind of gender or sexual identity minority. Um, so that also is, is kind of an added um, an added element when you have a court-involved family, um, because um, especially in certain counties there, um, people have... have unfortunately, some legitimate fear about biases and what may or may not be there. And so sometimes there may be very well-meaning um, people and attorneys, especially um, who may not be in the communities themselves who are like, hey, I don't hate gay people. That must mean I'm affirming. Uh, and they also may not have that recognition that um, there's there are systematic issues and there are things that um, families in um, consensual non-monogamous relationships, LGBTQIA relationships, or any other um, marginalized population, that those people and those families may have different experiences than the attorney or the judge or other people assigned with that case may be aware of. Um, so always my, my, my kind of suggestion is to keep your ears open and to be learning and to be aware that um, that experience is that person's truth, how they experienced in, in that moment. And um, that may be something that an attorney can go, hey, this is a really good thing to process with your therapist on how that you can have this experience. And it may have been traumatic and your sexual identity, gender identity or other piece of your identity may have been a part of uh, what contributed to the experiencing experience happening, which you know adds to the trauma because it's not something you can really take off. Uh, and that fear of can it happen again? So there's kind of that added barrier with, um, you know, attorneys coming in, whether they're appointed or, you know, with a judge, it's kind of a crapshoot who 
whose court you get into on um, distrust from any marginalized community that you may have, um, that systematically things haven't traditionally worked in those favors. Um, so there's uh, there can be that extra hurdle of how can I make my client feel safe to where I'm getting really good information because we're as clinicians or as attorneys, you're only as good as the information you receive. Um, so if we don't have the whole picture, we're really limited on what we can work with. Um, so I think kind of a global getting everyone on the same page is how do we make this a safe and supportive space? And does that mean that people involved, whether they're appointed clinicians, forensically um, or attorneys, where else can we learn to maybe understand that this family has a different experience than one we've encountered before? Do you think it's important that attorneys who have clients that fall into one of those categories um, and they need they see a need for counseling or some type of you know mental health treatment that they're encouraging them to go to somebody who has the specialized knowledge of dealing with that community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and looking at um, what that knowledge looks like and where that experience comes from. Um, lived experience is also is always awesome. And there's also like training and other components that go with it. Uh, like as a queer woman, my lived experience is totally not the, the only experience by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so just like checking that, oh, yes, this is a queer, a queer clinician um, doesn't quite check that box. Um, at, you know, looking at CVs or asking where else are you expanding your knowledge on how other families are operating, what uh, systematic issues may be um, prevalent, especially in your area. Um, as the political climate changes, what may be going on for a family here in Texas may look really different than um, a case that could look strikingly similar in, you know, California or somewhere else. Um, so kind of knowing where, where fears might be coming from, what experiences has that family or have those parents had with the legal system before in any aspect, not just family law. Uh, and that also means with other mental health professionals, that if they um, have had other experiences that haven't gone well with mental health professionals, um, and oftentimes that is something that is court ordered. Um, and even if it's not, um, therapy is just a really good idea for anybody. I'm a big proponent of it, um, that it, it it's a thing that is that that just kind of plays a role in how we experience things and how we take things in. And that also means what we're able to give back. And um, that can mean for a client, how they're able to function as a parent, how they're able to function um, as a party to the case and, and as a co-parent. So during the intro, I mentioned that you testify as an expert witness. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do for that? So it, it is few and far between. As you know, the goal of court is never to actually make it there. Um, so a lot of times I do consulting and like we talk about game plan and then uh, they mediate and settle, which is awesome because uh, that's what you like to see happen is that people learn the skills um, to, to resolve things. And there may need to be a helper in place like a mediator or um, a parent facilitator or someone of that nature, um, that there may need to be a mediator to help that family operate on their A-game. Um, but yeah, anytime that you can avoid um, the stress of uh, and, and int intimidation, because most people um, you know, aren't attorneys and don't go to court on the regular. So the idea of telling a story that that may be really traumatic and involves that person's child and that person's family um, sometimes can involve um, interpersonal violence or other traumas that may be um, related to the, the family that the child's a part of, that that's really intimidating and emotionally taxing. Uh, and when you have anything that's taxing on a parent, um, it, it's kind of hard to ignore that 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 doesn't affect the kids as well. And so when you, when they do make it to court and you're testifying as an expert, is that usually as the 
just the clinical therapist or somebody involved, or are you as an out uh, testifying as an outside expert? I've, I've done a little bit of both. Um, sometimes I'm the clinician assigned. So um, in some of those cases, they've been things like um, with parent-child relationships and immigration, or um, like uh, kind of best practice scenarios when there's been custody and there's been uh, treatment or other things that have needed to be involved to make the family system as safe as it can be. Um, was this treatment the, like kind of what is clinically indicated? Um, is this a like a legit program? Is what their this parents aftercare plan is, is that sustainable? Um, so kind of looking at that and also talking with attorneys about, hey, here's kind of some, some areas I might see where I wonder if uh, there could be some, some supports added or, um, you know, I wonder about if this need was met while this person was um, in treatment or what treatment looked like. Um, so kind of looking at best practices. Um, so sometimes it's, it's in that context and I, I don't know the client. I'm looking at documents and looking at, um, you know, discussing things about basically uh, best practices and what different forms of treatment can look like. Um, and of course, adding if there's a trauma-informed component, we all come into the world with trauma, like that's what being born is. Uh, so, um, but uh, past that, we, we experience different things. And anytime there's a separation, um, that's like a relational trauma and a rupture to, to attachment, um, which is so critical to parenting is attachment. So sometimes it is looking at how those things can be affected and what things could be offered as far as community resources um, or um, what might be helpful in, in helping parents or helping families be on their A-game. Other times I'm working with a client who's come in like, hey, um, I have this, this thing going on. It is court involved. And I have a, a checkbox that I have on my intake paperwork. Um, are you involved in any litigation or do you plan to be? Uh, and what, what I tell clients is I, I can't lie for you. Um, like I, like if, you're if you tell me something and I'm asked on the stand, like did something happen? I, I can't say that it didn't. Um, we can talk about if you want me on the stand, um, like biggest rules. I can't say I know you exist uh, unless I, you sign a release of information. It falls under one of those three um, like exceptions to confidentiality. And under the subpoena one, it would only be if you told someone that you were here. Um, so sometimes people will say, will you talk with my attorney and see if you might be a helpful witness? And sometimes the attorneys are like, yep, we can use you. And sometimes they're like, you know, just a letter's fine. Um, sometimes they're like, no, nah, you're, you're not going to be helpful. Um, so it's kind of, it, it can look like a lot of different things. Um, I also talk with my clients about what it's going to look like when I'm on the stand, especially if I'm still seeing them clinically. Um, so it's like, hey, um, here's here's kind of what, what this may look like. And here's risks and benefits um, to what it may be, having a practitioner knowing that your records could get subpoenaed. Um, so talking about those risks and benefits is something that I think clinicians really need to be um, very transparent with their clients that kind of the, the general rules of confidentiality may not totally apply to them while they're litigating. So you've mentioned a few times today about trauma. And I know uh, with your background that you have some specialized knowledge about dealing with people who have been involved in trauma. As family lawyers, what are some signs we should be looking for in clients to see maybe these people have experienced trauma? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, so like number one is they say so. Um, trauma is kind of in the eye of the beholder. So if you tell me that something was a traumatic experience, like you aren't telling me that for funsies. And most people don't just kind of like go around creating you know grandiose stories of traumas and horrible relationships. 
if there's an attorney who goes, you know what, my spidey senses are going off and, and stories just aren't lining up, psychological evaluations can be hugely helpful. Um, they can also be helpful with um, if there is trauma um, on uh, best ways to present things to clients. So I, I kind of like when I'm working with clients and I'm like, hey, you're doing something and this is like, I wonder how this might be affecting your end goal as you are a litigating person right now. Uh, I kind of call it a bee sting. So it's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. This is going to suck a little bit. Uh, so it's like a bee sting. It's going to hurt for for a second. And I'm also going to sit here with you and we're going to clean it out. Uh, and just like a bee sting, we got to get out the junk and then we got to pack it with some stuff and let it heal. Um, so also as a clinician, being really transparent with your clients and like, Part of our responsibility is if I see that you're doing something uh, or I'm wondering if there's um, supports that may be more helpful for you to get through a really stressful time um, more gracefully and less painfully, uh, my commitment as your clinician is, is that I'm going to tell you that. And sometimes it's like the, tr- the truth can can hurt and there may be need to use uh, kind of kid gloves. Um, so that doesn't mean that you can't hold your clients accountable or say things like, hey, um, I know you really want A, B, and C, but the legal likelihood of that is, is just not. What else can we do to make it more comfortable? Um, validating feelings is something you can do without validating facts. Uh, so you can say, wow, you sound really scared. Um, and just kind of hearing that, okay, someone sees that there's fear or that I'm nervous or uh, that I'm really excited about uh, this thing I'm doing with um, my child or the progression of how things are going. Um, validating the good stuff too. So um, as attorneys, when you see stuff like, hey, this is really awesome, like step forward, um, validating that as well. And that's also the other side of the coin of validating the discomfort, especially when there's been uh, trauma family of origin wise or in the relationship that's dissolved that leaves, um, you know, a co-parenting need to, to be built and explored. Um, so it can be how you present things to clients and also being aware of what responses might look like. So um, sometimes it, it can look like um, things that look like big emotion. Um, and that can be especially true over the last last couple of years. We've had this like crazy go around with this COVID thing. Um, can, can I do like a little crash course on some brain science? Oh, yeah. Okay, so um, there's only like really three parts of your brain you need to know. Uh, So up here is like your prefrontal cortex. And that's like your logic and reasoning uh, and like helps you make like good sense. Uh, This is why teenagers historically make really dumb choices because this part's still bacon until like about 24 to 26-ish. So that's why teenagers are super impulsive and like parents are like, what are you thinking? And they're like, I don't really know. Uh, It's because this isn't fully mature. Um, So in younger parents that you're, if you're working with younger parents, that is something to absolutely be cognizant of is their brains aren't done baking. Um, So then like in the middle, you got your hippocampus, which is like uh, where your memories are stored. Uh, And then down here, you've got your amygdala. And that is like our most primitive part of our brains. We share it with lizards. Uh, It's like called our lizard brain. And it's part of our limbic system, uh, which is where our fear response comes from. So that's, um, we've heard of fight or flight and our two lesser known, but equally as popular cousins of fawn, which is our super people pleasy stuff. Uh, So when lawyers see clients are like, okay, okay, okay. And super, super people pleasy. That's something to kind of like ping on and pay attention to that. Why is this person uh, maybe historically going into like kind of a fawning mode? And so you may see that with clients who um, go, okay, okay, okay. Or I feel like I have to do this and maybe don't feel empowered. And that's where my role as a clinician comes in is 
um, like it may be scripting. How do you talk with your attorney like this? about this. I have my imaginary sign that I am not an attorney and don't play one on TV. Um, so we can talk about what discussions might look like, but I'm not the one giving you legal advice. Um, but as an attorney, something to pay attention to is, is this person going into to a fawning response uh, and trying to be really nice and really pleasant and just not rock the boat? Uh, and that's something to pay attention to. You've got your fight or flight, which are what we're more uh, kind of used to. Um, fight can be pretty self-explanatory. Uh, and it can also be um, like, yelling or emotional outbursts. Flight can also look like um, like running away or avoidance. Uh, and then uh, that freeze, which is like kind of that shutdown, uh, which is your deer in headlight. They can see the car coming, the headlights are coming, they know they're going to get hit, uh, but there's not really a damn thing they can do about it. Uh, so that's just kind of like your brain shutting down. So our brain, when we're in a place of kind of fear and trauma, it just picks the one that's most likely to keep us safe. So in a really healthy nervous system, uh, what we have is like, um, let's say, for instance, um, I got mugged by a guy in a blue hat. And so like I go, oh, I'm walking down the street. I see a guy in a blue hat. Um, my, my hippocampus goes, oh, crap. I was mugged by a guy in one of those. And then I'm taking in other data with my prefrontal cortex. I'm like, oh, man, dude in a blue hat's like eating an ice cream cone. He's chatting on his cell phone. He's smiling. Uh, he's holding this like friendly dog, wagging his tail. I probably don't need to look at this guy as a threat. And my amygdala can uh, stay chill uh, and doesn't have to ping on. Um, in somebody that's that's had chronic activation, um, it's kind of like this part gets skipped and it goes, oh my gosh, guy in blue hat, panic, panic, danger, Will Robinson, uh, and they aren't able to think at their best. So we also look at the past couple of years and we've had this little COVID thing and we can't see it, hear it, smell it, touch it, taste it, uh, but it could kill you or grandma. And so for a while it was, we were all running around with really heightened nervous systems. Um, and so, and that was true of clinicians and clients and attorneys alike. It was pretty um, universal to the collective. As things are kind of starting to, to get back to some normalcy, it's not like our brains just bounce back. Um, our brains are fabulously elastic, but we also got to teach them and work with them. And we are creatures of habit. Uh, and so while we may have gotten into certain patterns over the last couple of years, they may not be needed now. And so it's kind of undoing some of that. So sometimes um, clients with trauma have found it more exacerbated over the last couple of years, um, given what's happened with you know public health and other things going on um, in, in the social environment. This episode of the Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm, providing family law litigation in Collin, Denton, and Dallas counties and appeals across Texas. For more information, visit draperfirm.com or call 469-715-6801. So when we were chit-chatting before the podcast about this topic, one of the things that you mentioned that I wanted to hit on was biases to look out for when dealing with trauma. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. So oftentimes with, with, um, with bias, there can be, um, especially with women, there's like that line um, we've heard of like kind of the, the perfect victim and, and spoiler alert, there isn't one. Um, so there's kind of with any kind of marginalized population as well, kind of looking for that other outlier. And sometimes uh, people aren't aware that that person may already feel or have experienced in their own real life, a lot of otherness. And so that kind of like, okay, I'm talking with a person or maybe presenting my case to a judge uh, who might not understand me and understand how things might show up 
um, and my, why I, I might be um, really emotional when talking about something that's hugely painful. Uh, I know that doesn't mean that somebody might be an emotionally unstable parent. It's totally cool to show emotion. It's just, uh, what do you do with it? And how do you make sure it doesn't impact parenting in a way that's maladaptive? Um, so being able to, as an attorney, kind of notice things with your clients as far as, hey, is my client getting activated? Um, have I noticed in my, a change in my client's responsiveness? Have I noticed a change in um, my client's demeanor when you're having consults with them? Have I noticed more avoidance? Um, how have things been going with the child um, as they're reporting about kids? Um, so looking at things like that and talking with the clinicians, um, we are we are definitely, um, I like to think we are an asset and um, we all kind of work on the, the same goal of having healthy families. Uh, and so it's really important to know who your clinicians in the area are uh, and who does what work with what populations um, and who's comfortable with what dynamics. Uh, so for instance, you may have a fabulously trauma-informed clinician um, who, who just may not um, be well-versed in, let's say, consensual non-monogamy, which may be an aspect. Um, to a certain family situation, just not a good fit. So knowing your clinicians and who who might be um, just personality-wise also a good fit with your client. Just like not every attorney is works the same way with every client. And um, there are clients that attorneys work with better than others. Clients and therapists are the same way. And that goodness to fit is really important. Um, so there can be a point of, um, as often as appropriate, having that empowerment there that, hey, here are some options of some therapists I know who I think can be a really awesome support for you with, through this journey. Or here are some therapists who I know um, may be able to have a, a really great rapport with your child uh, and kind of help be able to communicate with all the adults in that child's life on getting everybody on the same page. Because if the end goal is that uh, we have healthy kiddos with healthy family systems, it is absolutely a team effort that takes the village. Um, so as a clinician, I'm like, hey, um, we, we're, we talk about releases of information and risks and benefits. I really, 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 um, I absolutely require them when there's another clinician involved um, for ethical reasons. I love them when there can be other other supports involved, whether it's um, the child's school or um, someone in a faith community or someone else that can also um, be there for the family as a support. Um, and so sometimes it's kind of that creative thinking uh, that I think social workers are really awesome at, not that I'm biased, speaking uh -huh. of, um, that um, can be limiting with, hey, this is kind of uh, our standard setting, how we've always done it, or this just kind of seems like this is kind of a, you know, this is... Um, a uh, like an order I already have saved in my hard drive and I can just change out the names. Uh, so I'm a really big fan of being super creative also when you need to be. Um, and, and while I can't make recommendations about what plans might look like, um, there are ways that that a lot of families do things with step down plans or um, like, OK, when this, then this with trigger clauses that work really well for families or uh, in families where a, a parent may travel, there may be trigger clauses around that uh, or other things that can help encourage stability for the child, especially if the child's already uh, endured a trauma, which they have, if they've um, had their parents uh, separate and they're, especially if they've been exposed to some of the emotion that can be part of litigation, that is grown up stuff that kids don't need to know about. So something you said in there really made me think, you know, as family lawyers, it's super important that you have a pretty lengthy list of mental health professionals that have different niches yeah. so that no matter what type of issue your particular client or the child in a case might be dealing with, you can find somebody who's really niched in that area to point them to. 
Absolutely. Like another one would be um, people who work with neurodiverse clients. Um, so uh, if you have a neurodiverse co-parents, you are primed for extra high conflict. Uh, so things like rejection sensitivity or other things that may be uh, in neurodiverse clients with ADHD or missing social cues and clients on the autism spectrum um, that attorneys having an awareness of, hey, while you aren't clinicians and don't play them on TV, just like I don't play a lawyer, uh, knowing who to ask so y'all can have your own consults um, and going, hey, I'm, I'm noticing this. What are your what are your thoughts? And just um, just like I keep a whole bunch of everybody uh, on my referral list, um, I absolutely encourage lawyers or anyone who works with, with people to, to kind of do the same. Uh, so if you have a family that you're working with that you know is neurodiverse, that may be a, a different clinician or a different pot of people that you pull from than if you have um, a family that, um, let's say, maybe um, Orthodox Jews, and they may have their own set of needs that uh, might not be, I mean, there's no like standard setting high conflict case, but uh, like the, finding people that have those niches, whether it's lived experience in addition to training, um, or a lot, a lot, a lot of trainings with um, other people in the communities they've trained and calling them an ally. Um, so like we don't get to proclaim ourselves allies of other communities. They go, yes, like you support us in the ways we like to be supported. So remembering that our clients live their lives 24-7 and we're around for a snapshot of it. Um, and so uh, like Sometimes clients are like, yeah, you know, I don't really care about your training. I just want to know that you can understand me, that I can trust you and that you're going to help me. So circling back on the trauma piece we were talking about earlier, a lot of the trauma that clients in family law cases have dealt with is a result of family violence. And so what kind of special considerations do you see for cases involving a history of domestic violence? Sure. There, I mean, so one thing we also know about family violence is that it's that it's really, really underreported. Um, and there's, you know, all, all the reasons around why. Uh, so it's kind of like absence of data does not necessarily equate absence of a problem. So looking at things um, traditionally like police reports, awesome if they're there, so often they aren't. Uh, and that's something that looking at language and our family wizard messages, looking at the dynamics of how parents interact. Um, so looking at like when we're talking about language, things like, oh, I'll let you, da, 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 da. adults don't let other adults do certain things. It's, hey, what do you think about this? Or, hey, I'd like to, how can we work this out? Um, is much more collaborative language than I guess I'll let you or allowing. So those kinds of things can be flags to look at and go, hey, what is that power and control dynamic? When it's with, with somebody's kiddo, um, parents get protective. It's what we do. Uh, and there's also that, okay, is this coming from a place of a parent trying to be protective? And if so, let's look at that. Or is this coming from another dynamic looking at that coercive control? Um, so it can be that there might have been a physical violence incident and it may have happened once. And that can be all it takes to keep someone um, in line. So it may be that, hey, you know what, there's no police report. So, you know, we really can't say um, that there's family violence. There are still like best practices um, that um, sometimes people well-meaning will go, oh, OK, well, you know, this story kind of tracks. So we'll send um, your co-parent to anger management which sounds great, um, except that um, interpersonal violence and anger management really don't have a whole lot to do together. Um, somebody who um, is engaged in a violent relationship generally doesn't have anger issues if they get pulled over for speeding or if um, their boss tells them that they need to redo a job. It is um, when they can get away with it and when it's a place that they know it's functional. So that person may know if they go off on the cop that gives them a speeding
speeding ticket, that's probably not going to be super functional and they may keep it together. So anchor management can sometimes teach somebody, um, and in the case of batterers, tools to use uh, the right words. Uh, and so they may learn, learn, learn words like emotional safety or um, being heard. And so they start using the lingo and can use it to be more manipulative. So, um, so sometimes people will go, oh, yeah, anger management, that'll get it done. And oftentimes that can exacerbate the problem any more than, than getting it better. Um, BIP is, I think, underutilized and really needs a, a PR lift, uh, especially with attorneys and Pitching it to clients as, hey, this is not a punishment. This is not a bad thing. Um, there can be a lot of power in stories of, hey, um, I, as your parent, did some stuff that was really not cool. And part of being your parent is that I, I want to learn better for us and for your family because you, as my child, deserve a healthier family than what I've given you so far. And that means like putting on my big person, you know, big person underwear and uh, doing BIP and learning things like um, what biases they may have towards um, different for, towards genders or in relationships and how that also might trickle down to their children. And that can show up with um, alienation, refusing to resist dynamics and, uh, you know, all the, all of those things. Um, so kind of like reframing BIP as this is a good thing. This is a tool that helps you be a safe person in your child's life. And uh, while we know that the the stuff on BIP, um, it, it, it's not perfect. We also need to look at accredited programs that so many clinicians can go, yeah, I, I do BIP, uh, but there's really um, not a lot of follow up to make sure that they're accredited. So looking at the Texas Council of Family Violence and what programs they track um, to making sure you're getting a program or counseling with someone who really does understand the dynamics and treats it differently than anger management. And that can also mean if there's children that have been exposed to violence, uh, whether that's verbal, sexual, emotional, physical, any of it, or um, even if parents think they were in the other room, they didn't hear a thing. Kids are smart uh, and they can pick up on energy just like we can. Like if you've ever walked into a room and you're like, whoa, I can cut the tension with a knife uh, and no one said something. Um, kids are, are, are no different. They just may not have the words to put that together yet. Um, so sometimes looking at um, with your clients talking about BIP or therapy or other things that may be seen as a punishment or as, oh, this is something wrong with you as a tool to help you be the parent your kid deserves. So can you tell, for anybody who doesn't know what BIP is, can you explain a little bit about what yes. it is? Batter, uh, BIP is Batterers Intervention and Prevention Programs. Um, they can be um, really easily found um, at any kind of like family violence agency. Uh, and those are really good places to start looking to find ones that are accredited. Um, so different than anger management, BIP talks about the power and control dynamics. And it talks about things um, like gender bias. Uh, and um, same-sex bias and, and, and things with sexuality. And there can be a whole other um, element of, of violence when there's a gender and sexual minority as far as threats of outing somebody. Um, or if you know they live in an unaffirming area, hey, um, I might make your household or your community an unsafe space for you. So there can be an added dynamic with gender and sexual minorities in family violence cases that attorneys may not be aware of because... Um, we kind of don't know what we don't know. And so sometimes uh, people not maliciously don't know what to look for to go, oh, this this might be a thing that is used to uh, kind of make the legal system continue continually abusive, which isn't its purpose. So, so that can be a, a piece as well. So you kind of mentioned a little bit with the gender affirming piece there, um, circling back a little on the LGBTQIA plus demographic 
and com- our community. Um, are there unique trauma issues that family lawyers should be looking out for with respect to people in that community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I don't think um, either personally or professionally, I have met a single uh, queer person who hasn't experienced um, a, a rupture as a result of their sexuality or gender identity, um, or in cases of um, sec- like sexual minorities within the polyamorous community that haven't experienced some kind of uh, rejection, judgment, uh, refusal of service, something, someone telling them there's something wrong with them or the way they're doing their family. Um, and so especially if that person knows that their providers are not a member of that community, um, those providers need to know that it may be a slower build to get rapport. And that rapport is so important that if your clients trust you, just like if you can cluster your tra- client, you're going to feel a lot better about the work that you're doing and a lot more confident about the outcomes that you're going to get. And it's the same for clients too, of, okay, how do I know that I'm safe with you? And how do I know that um, if I'm going to share something with you about an experience that my family's had that I don't know if your family's had, and I don't really know where you stand, um, how do I know that I'm going to be heard? And um, if it's something that doesn't make a legal statute, that it's like, yes, this is a a crappy thing and a painful thing. And here's why, um, here's, Here's why that may need to be managed differently than a legal context. Um, being able to use that with kid gloves because it is a it's 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 a piece of of an identity, and it's something that people are kind of used, unfortunately, to being um, having to be like on guard for. Uh, and so, understanding that it may take a little bit longer if you aren't in the community yourself, and even if you are, um, you know, internalized homophobia and transphobia are absolutely things. Um, so just understanding that that safety may take a little bit. So when we were chatting before, you mentioned not a lot of professionals receive training specific to um, working with the queer community. What type of specific training have you received? Um, so I've done a ton. I'm So there's a ton online uh, for clinicians who are members of Good Therapy, which is like a therapist search engine. They are fabulous um, at doing a lot of um, queer-centric trainings. I also go to other providers in the community who are queer themselves and go directly to people in the community um, for training. Um, so training um, that I go to for um you know, for trans clients or treating um, non-binary or gender creative youth. Um, I go to to clinicians who have that lived experience. There are wonderful communities, like the that's the happy part of the internet. Um, there are wonderful, wonderful professional communities where people can become aligned. Um, there's kink aware professionals, and most of them um, are, are well versed in not only any kind of non traditional relationship dynamics, but more likely um, queer affirming. Um, and then looking at things like the resource center in our area. I keep some running list of, um, you know, professionals who are queer friendly and a lot of the queer therapists, myself included, keep running lists of all sorts of, of places and entities that we know are, are affirming. Um, and that can be anything from, um, therapists to hairdressers, to attorneys, to uh, places of worship and anything people may need to make their support system whole. Um, and that's good for, for adults and kids. We don't do parenting alone. Nobody is an island. And so making sure that people have the resources that they can go be authentic, be themselves and know that their needs are getting met um, is is really what can help achieve safety and security for that client, regardless of what may happen in that court proceeding, knowing that they have that support around them. And it's also a hugely awesome model for kids. 
um, that kids is monkey see monkey do. And if they see us as parents taking care of our needs and staying connected with healthy people in our social circle, uh, and I just define a healthy connection of someone who wants well for you. Um, so like if I, you know, walked up to you and punched you in the face on the street, is that a connection? Yes. This is a healthy one. Not so much. <laughs> so like, um, there can be a lot of space for modeling. Hey, here's what a healthy friendship and other relationships and what community can look like often in the queer community. That is not a families that, um, have, we share DNA with, uh, there's that concept of family, uh, or the, the family that you make. And so it can be, uh, a really powerful tool of, hey, um, you can pick who's in your life and you can pick how people treat you and how you respond to people, um, which is a really great social skill for kids as they grow up. And I, we can also talk about how we interact with people um, and model that we may interact with people who we have some differences with. Um, you know, those relationships didn't dissolve for no reason and how to, to do those respectfully. Um, and it can be, we some, and oftentimes it is, you just talk about the kid. For some people, they use OFW uh, where they just use the calendar section. They don't even do uh, messages. Uh, and sometimes that is what creates the smoothest family, smoothest family setting um, is that it can be, especially in violent situations, uh, that increased interactions with the parents unless um, something like BIP has been completed in conjunction with some kind of um, legal consequence to where that person has ownership of their behavior and how it's affected um, their partner, former partners or children and, themse and themselves, that they that they too are worth of be worth being part of a healthy relationship. Uh, and they, they need to be a part of that and they can learn those skills too. Um, so I think as attorneys, if we're trying, as, uh, trying to protect tech clients maybe is kind of the story I make up on my head in my head of, Hey, I don't want to admit that my client may have um, some issues where maybe they don't, they, they um, have acted in ways they shouldn't have or ways of trying to control um, their, their previous partner or their child. BIP is, is a good thing. It keeps your part that, that partner from being a continued litigant. Um, so anytime that something can be framed as a tool, like this is not a punishment, this is to help you um, not have to hire me again and not see a courtroom again and um, be a really good model for your, your kiddo. Um, we are not given parenting manuals. If we're, when I work with parents, I'm like, hey, if we're lucky, like you maybe got a class at the hospital and like changing a diaper and like burping your baby. Uh, but once they were holding your head up, um, they you, you were kind of on your own. Uh, and so it's, you know, learning that each child is different and the way that you were raised as, as a child or the way that your other child's parent was raised as a child um, may not work with, with your own. And so that can also um, obviously kind of create, create conflict and things like that. So those skills, as far as healthy communication, can't really be taught in anger management when there really is those coercive control dynamics uh, and somebody who really needs to have a change of mind frame in how they see um, a partner, whether it's somebody who's um, female or otherwise marginalized in a population. So we're just about out of time, but one of the questions I like to ask everyone who comes onto the podcast is this. If you could give one piece of advice to family lawyers, what would it be? Um, learn. Uh, and I would give that advice to, to everybody and clinicians too, um, that it is like, keep your ears open. That if something, if you're, if it's something that you're like, this makes no sense to me, dig a little bit deeper, um, that it may be like, you know what, this still makes no sense. Uh, and that's a really good, important piece of data for you to have. It may be that there's something else beneath it and it could be something that's really painful or maybe embarrassing or carry shame with it. And that's something that might be why a client might have withhold, withheld that information. Um, you know, people, you know, 
what I've heard, you know, attorney jail hates surprises. Uh, and so making sure that that space is like, Hey, I'm noticing this. Is there something you haven't told me? Let's talk about this or kind of just point blank asking, um, you know, have you ever felt unsafe? And so sometimes going, um, you know, Hey, um, was there domestic violence in the relationship? And people go, no, cause, uh, we kind of may have this idea that means black eyes and broken bones. And it absolutely can be, it can also be, um, Hey, were you ever called names or did you ever uh, feel like you couldn't say no to sex? Or was um, there ever, uh, were there ever things done that were illegal that you uh, felt like you were pressured into doing or not saying anything about? Uh, what would happen if you told your, your your former partner no? And what could that have looked like for you? So there are questions that attorneys can ask if they think there's something beneath the surface or you know, even what are you afraid might happen if somebody uh, really knew all the skeletons in the closet about your family? Um, it's kind of a good, really open-ended one. Uh, and it may take time. And there's like kind of that um, your that your job is there that you want to help uh, and that here's, here's what I need to help you. And what do you need from my end? Um, so that also means like that as you work with different clients, you may also learn to things that like uh, on ways of delivery that work better with some than others. Uh, and so going if you have to do something like, you know, when I talk about the bee stings, if you have to share that with a client, like, Hey, I've got to tell you something you're doing is just like, not going to, not going to cut the mustard. How would you like me to give you that information in a way that is functional? Uh, because you don't want your client to like, you know, blow up at you. They probably don't want to do that either. Um, so asking how your client likes to receive feedback. And that's also like, can be room um, for changing growth and learning too. Um, the client relationship between an attorney is just like a client relationship with a therapist or a a relationship with anyone else. Uh, it's, it's just kind of learning how each other operates within that dynamic. So where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you? Um, so I, um, they are welcome to email me, Samantha at greenerpastureswellness.com. Um, I have a website that is currently under construction, greenerpastureswellness.com. Um, and I, you know, I love taking emails and, and talking with people uh, and seeing how, how I can help. Sometimes also as a professional that is knowing uh, our own limits and that um, there's someone else who is more awesome than we are. Uh, and so that's when keeping that big, that big pool of referrals comes come super in handy. Um, so sometimes the best help is, I'm not the person who, who can help you. And here's someone who can really offer that. So um, another piece of advice would be like kind of knowing um, our own limitations. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to leave us a review and subscribe so you can enjoy future episodes. The Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.